We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. What does that mean, God? When the world around me is crumbling, when all of what I hope for, when all of what I dream for, all of the things that I desire in the world are being taken away. God, you promised to never leave me nor forsake me. You promised that I was your child. You promised that you would do these things. And all of what I see isn't happening. Are you real? Are you there? Can you be trusted? Or is it just an empty word? Is it just another politician promising to do things for me to get my vote? And then a month later, they change their promise. Brothers and sisters, this morning we're talking about a passage that solidifies the fact that indeed we do walk by faith and not by sight. But in a moment we're going to see that we worship a God whose promises are true, they are real, and they are solid. What God has said he will do and what God has said he has done. And may that bring faith and joy and encouragement to us this morning as we continue in this journey known as faith. Because we do walk by faith and not by sight. But what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how at times when we begin to visually look at what's going on in our lives, and perhaps our lives are not lining up with the version that we expect or the version that we desire, we begin to doubt God. We begin to doubt who He is. We begin to doubt if He's real. And what we're going to see in a moment is, is the same story was going on for the people of God during a time after Jesus had come, had lived, had died on a cross, had risen from the grave, had ascended into heaven and said, I will come again for you. You see, the people of God began to see who Jesus was. But you have to remember that for centuries before Jesus came, individuals had heard a story about a Messiah who would come and save the people of God from the tyranny that they were under. For centuries, the way that people worshipped was by going to a city once a year to have a priest who they knew but couldn't really get close to offer sacrifices for their sins in the hopes that by doing so, their sins would be forgiven. And so once a year, this priest would go forward into the temple. Now, if you were a commoner like we are, you couldn't go anywhere near to that area. And so the priest would prepare himself. He would get ready for these sacrifices. You would hope that things were good. They would get themselves ready. They would put the rope around their waist. They would put the bells on their feet and on their hands. So if something went wrong as they got closer to the ark... And they began to do something that was impure. And they began to hear about Indiana Jones and the I'm melting, I'm melting. They could be pulled back. And now this priest, we need to remember, had to be someone who was humble. He had to be called by God. But interestingly enough, people were kind of wondering during this time. They were saying, you know, we've been doing this year 
after year, after year, after decade, after decade, after century, after century. Why isn't it working? Nah, don't worry about that. We've got it figured out. We'll just trust that this priest is going to do what he needs to do. And as we've learned through this book, the priest would get ready to go and offer the sacrifice, have that rope tied around him, and we had old Joe back there, right, who was the rope handler. And we hope and pray that old Joe could hear what was going on. And what we found before was old Joe's hearing aids might not have worked well, if you guys remember that story, right? And as he gets closer and offers the sacrifice behind the veil, something goes wrong. And he screams out, right? I'm burning. I'm burning. Right? Old Joe kind of goes, what's he saying over there? It burns. It burns. Old Joe goes, oh, he's saying it's his turn. It's his turn. Right? All of these things are going on. In this futile effort to have individuals' sins forgiven. And then one day, all of a sudden, along comes Jesus. And something's different. And Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he has come to change the world. And through his life, people begin to see him perform miracles. They begin to say, there is something different about this person. Did you see what he has done? And as he travels through his ministry, people begin to wonder truly who he is. Is he a prophet? Is he some miracle worker? Is he someone that's come to do some great things? Is he going to be a king and maybe free us from the tyranny of the Roman government? Maybe by following him, we'll be brought to riches. And we can establish a kingdom under him. And Jesus comes and says, I'm not a prophet. I am a king. But I am the son of God. You can't be the son of God. That's impossible. In fact, if you think that you're God, and you say that you're God, by doing that... The very sentence for you is death. Who do you say you are? I am. And the very people who thought that Jesus had come to establish a kingdom, the very next week were yelling, crucify, 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 as Jesus hung on a cross. And everybody looked and they said, what about these promises that Jesus had said? What about the fact that he had come and said that things would be different? What about the fact that he said that if he follows us, he will give us life? What about the fact that if we do follow him, we truly are free from our sin? I see him hanging on a cross. What does that mean? And then Jesus dies. And in that moment... Everybody's looking and saying, just another empty promise. Just another sort of placation from someone to gain popularity, to gain a following that they could not follow through on. There's no God. Jesus isn't any better than any politician. 
and then three days later, Jesus rises from the grave. He's whole, he's true, and he's done everything that he said he will do. You are free from your sins. You are a child of the king. You are part of his kingdom when you put your faith and trust in him. And I, God, promise you that you are mine. And a year goes by, and 10 years go by, and 20 years go by, and about 30 to 35 years go by from the time that Jesus ascends into heaven and says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And your life right now is a living hell. You are being persecuted for your faith. Anytime you talk about Jesus, you are ridiculed. People are dying because of their faith. And you're looking around and you're saying, now wait a minute, Jesus promised this. I saw him rise from the grave. He told me that he would be with me and never leave me nor forsake me. This isn't good. Maybe it's better if we go back to what we had before. Maybe it's better if we go back to that Old Testament system. You know what? Maybe we need to go back to Moses. Maybe we need to go back to believing in the prophets. Maybe we need to go back to the sacrificial system again because this isn't working. What we see right now isn't working. But God has said, you are mine. Brothers and sisters, this morning I ask you a simple question. Do you walk by faith and not by sight? And when your sight tells you that everything around you shouldn't be believed, do you stand upon the promises of God? This morning, we're going to ask this question. And that is simply this, when we face challenging times, how might we be encouraged to persevere in our faith and walk with Christ? How many of you in your walk with Jesus, when things are going awry, have wondered if God is there and if he cares? Sometimes we doubt our faith. Sometimes we doubt, can we truly trust in the promises of God? Because everything around us is falling apart. And what we're going to see in a moment in this passage, it's this beautiful picture that what God has said he will do and what God has said he has done, and he has done way more than you ever could possibly imagine. We're in this book called Hebrews, and what we're discovering is, through the story that I've just told, the people of God had believed in Jesus. Jesus had come, he had lived, he had died, he had risen from the grave, he had ascended into heaven. He had said to the people, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And about 30 to 35 years had gone by since people saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And life wasn't good. In fact, it was miserable. And the people of God were beginning to say, maybe Jesus isn't everything that he's cracked up to be. Maybe what he said was just an empty promise. Maybe what he told us were just words so that we would follow him. And they began to doubt him. 
And so the writer of Hebrews comes forward and he says, I want to tell you to stay in the faith. Continue in your belief in Jesus because he is the best of the best. He is all that you need. And then he moves forward and he says, I'm going to show you systematically how much greater Jesus is by all of the things that you want to go back to. I'm going to show you how he's greater than the prophets. I'm going to show you how he's greater than Moses. I'm going to show you how he's greater than the high priest Melchizedek. And then I pray that after you see that, that's going to continue to encourage you to persevere in your faith, even though right now what you see doesn't look good. And so we get into this passage, and we've just come off of this portion where the author warns the people of God about falling away or drifting from their faith. And yet what he then does is he says, remember the certainty of God's promise. And that's where we find ourselves today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 6, verse 13 through 20. And this is what it says. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for himself to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What an awesome passage. What a beautiful promise that we have. And this morning, what I want to encourage you in is, is as we walk by faith and not by sight, and when our sight tells us that everything is falling apart around us, and we begin to doubt who God is, may we stand on the promises of God. One of the things that I would encourage you to do if you have time this week is just to Google the promises of God in the scriptures and just to take time and look at the unconditional promises that God gives, but then also look at the conditional promises that God gives and recognize that what we have here this morning is a promise that God says, and he says, I will do this. And what we're going to discover is when God says, I will do this, it is done. And nothing will get in his way. What's interesting 
is when you go through a challenging time, when something comes forward in your life unexpected, something that you don't desire, something that you don't want, something that you don't think you deserve, and you begin to go to God and say, why is this happening? Where are you, God? Have you left me? Do you care? that you would look back and you would remember this passage, but also what we're going to discover in a moment, that God is right there, and God does care, and he has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you when you've placed your faith and trust in him and become a child of a living king and an heir to the promise of God. Never, ever, ever doubt that that's true. And so this morning... What I want to show you is this. How do we move forward in those moments when visually all around us, everything's telling us your life is in shambles. God isn't there. Don't believe in a God who makes empty promises. He's just another politician. And this morning, what we're going to see as we look at this verse is that we can stand on someone who's made a promise and sealed it with an oath. The first thing I want you to see in verses 13 through 15 is this. When you're going through a hard time, we must remember and reflect upon the promise that God made to Abraham. Remember and reflect upon the promise that God made to Abraham. We look in and we see this and it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. If you have a, a Bible and you like to, to, to mark it, one of the things that I would, would say is um, mark the, the following things, okay? He swore by himself. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And then mark down waiting patiently. So what happened? What is this promise? We're going to go back just real quick and we're going to talk about the promise that God makes to Abraham. Now remember, we see that Abraham does not have a son and God says, I'm going to give you a son and that son is born. Right? And who is that son? Isaac. And then God says, I want you to give up your son. They were saying, so you want me to do what? The promise is made in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 16. I would encourage you to read essentially all of Genesis 22. But I want to just take a minute. And this is the promise that's essentially being reflected upon here in the book of Hebrews. And so we read this. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, what have you done? We'll talk about that in just a minute. And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offsprings all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God says it. He will do it. He has done it. But let's take a moment and let's go back and see what God said. 
Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And you get a son, and his name is Isaac. And now I want you to go, and I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. We walk by faith, not by sight. I get it, God. Maybe you want me to do something. Maybe you want me to move forward. You've given me a hundred sons. I love this one, but if I have to, well, I don't fully understand. One out of 99 isn't that terrible. My legacy will still go on. My family name will still continue. I guess I can do it. But wait a minute, God. This is my only son. This is the only one I have. This is the only one who will continue my legacy. You've told me that you will never leave me nor forsake me. And now you're telling me that you want me to kill my son on an altar for you? I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it. Do you trust me, says God. And so, as we know in the story, Abraham moves forward. And oftentimes what we discover in the writing, essentially, of the Hebrews, it is on the downward thrust before Abraham is ready to sacrifice his son that God says, hold up, and provides the sacrifice. That is the action to what God is speaking to when he says, because you have done this. Abraham, because you have done this, I will make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be great, and they will have rule over their enemies. It's interesting because God, what, what he says he will do, but oftentimes what he says, it takes time and trust and faith. I want to show you just a couple of quick things right here. The first thing that is so important to see is this, that God promises to Abraham include those found in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 17, 1 through 22, and then obviously in 22, 16 through 18, which is the promise that's been made here. Here the author in Hebrews focuses on the blessing God promised Abraham and his offspring in Genesis 22, 16 through 17. That's what's being stated right here in the verses that we've talked about in the book of Hebrews. But here's the thing. Don't miss this, right? Okay? Back where I told you that he waited patiently, right? What's, what's our concept of patience right now? Okay? Amazon is a day late and we're mad. I'm serious. Okay? But God, you, 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 you said you would deliver it. Most scholars will say that Abraham waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac. You told me you'd give me a son. You told me I would have a son. How many people have waited 25 years for something? How many of you are still waiting 25 years for something? What God says he will do. Because when God makes a promise, by his character it will be done. 
Now, interestingly enough, okay, Abraham trusts that. He walks by faith, not by sight. Has Isaac. We've heard this story. God says, go sacrifice your son. He doesn't. And then he says, you're going to have more descendants than you can possibly imagine. He never witnessed the fulfillment of the promise of innumerable offspring in his lifetime. In Abraham's lifetime, he never witnessed that promise. But it's right here today. One of the things that you need to remember and recognize is, should you be so fortunate to witness the promise of God in your lifetime, praise God for it. But just because the promise of God doesn't occur in your lifetime doesn't mean that the promise doesn't exist. And so the first thing, when you wonder where God is and what he's doing, you need to remember and reflect upon the promise that God made to Abraham. What he says he will do. And then I love this. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18. We continue on, and he says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. If you have your Bibles, circle heirs of what was promised. Right there is the statement that you are an heir to what has been given and you are an heir to the kingdom of God. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which the impossible, uh, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Beautiful part of Scripture. So the next thing that I want to encourage you in is this. First and foremost, we must remember and reflect upon the promise that God made to Abraham. And the second that we see is we must remember that God does not go back on his promise. And he seals it with an oath. If God says, I will do this, and there's no condition in it. Now, remember, there are conditional promises. I will do this if. But there are also unconditional promises that God has said. I will do this. He will do it. And so one of the things that I want to show you is this. How often in our lives do we see individuals come forward and they promise to give us a better life? Every single presidential candidate out there says, if you vote for me, I promise you that all of the problems that America has, I will fix. Right? I promise to X, okay? Then they get into office, and the next thing you know is what they promised to do with X isn't popularly the most favored opinion. And so now they're like, ah, I'm going to change it to Y. But I promise to do Y, okay? JR. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make you a promise, okay? Um, you can have $100 of mine. Okay? Just after church, it's yours. Uh, 
sounds pretty good, right? He's like, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm giving 100 bucks away. <laughs> Overemphasis. Point that I'm making is this. How often do we see individuals come forward and promise, and yet the words that they speak mean absolutely nothing, and nothing is ever followed through on? Or better yet, I just say those words, and the whole time, behind our backs, we're doing one of these. This is what I love about God. God comes forward and he says, I am going to make your lineage greater than the stars in the sky, greater than the sand on the seashore. Right? And what he does is he comes forward and he says, now, I've said that, and just so you know, just so there's no doubt, just so there's no questioning that I'm doing one of these behind my back, I'm going to come forward to you, even though I don't have to, and I'm going to do one more thing. You see, in your economy, in your rules of law, what happens is this. When someone swears to do something, you have them come forward and they swear by oath. Now, how many of us recognize that when we move forward to give testimony, what do we do? We place our hand on the Bible and we swear and we are under oath. Meaning that what we say is held accountable to us. And if what we say isn't true and it's discovered that we were lying under oath, there is penalty for the false words. And so God comes forward and he says, well, you know, here's the deal. Uh, can't really swear to anybody because I'm God, so I, I'm going to do this. To show you and prove to you that my promises are true. Number one, I tell you that my character, I do not lie. But just to double solidify this, I'm going to swear it by an oath. Don't have to but I will. And so one of the other things that I want to tell you is this. When you look at the promises that God made, remember and recognize that God does not lie and God goes one step forward and he says, you can hold me accountable to it because I've sworn an oath. And that's what I love about this. And so what I want to show you is this. There are two unchangeable things, right? We look in the scripture and we read, men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. If you're under oath, this is what was said. There's no, oh, well, I didn't say that. Or, you must have that wrong. Or, oh, I never said that. I said this. I never told Abraham that he would have descendants greater than... I just told him that I liked oceans. And I think I talked about the beach. No. You said this and you put it under oath. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose. It's not changing. It's not going to be different. There's nothing more. There's nothing new. There's nothing need that this needs to be added. Of his purpose, very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. What are the two unchangeable things? The two unchangeable things are God's promise and his oath. The character of God is holy, and he does not lie. 
You can trust God in that. Thus, his announcement of this promise is sure. Okay? I'm holy and I do not lie. And then he doubles down on it. He says, I'm holy and I do not lie, and I'm going to tell you I'm ready to double down. And it's doubly sure when it's combined with an oath. Do you trust the promise God has made? Do you walk by faith and not by sight? The whole purpose of this is encouraging one to hold fast to the hope of God's promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am going to prepare a place for you. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are an heir to the kingdom. You have these promises. Do you believe them? And then we continue on. And this part, I love it. It says right here, okay? We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. What have they fled from? Remember that these individuals, many of them were the Jews of the day who were utilizing the old sacrificial system to aid them in their faith. They had abandoned that and held on to Jesus. And now they were being persecuted for their faith, like I talked about in the beginning of the story of the sermon. We've left this. We've fled to hold on to the promises that are made. And we are in a raging storm and it's not going well. And then I love what the author does in the next verse. He goes to 19 and he says, We have this hope. What's the hope? What do we hope in? We hope in our Savior Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, who came, who lived, who died, who rose from the grave, who has ascended into heaven, who will come again to judge the living and the dead and promises anyone who trusts in him and puts their faith in him and makes him Lord of their life is a child of the living king and will inherit God's kingdom, period. I don't know about you, but that's hope. And so no matter what happens in this world, we know that our destiny is one of a king and an heir to the promise of God. That's the hope we have. And so when the world around us is pulling us in every direction, when the enemy is trying to drag us down and say, you can't trust him. He's just an empty politician. He's not who he said he was. Go back to the things of the world. Trust in those things. Those things will get you better things, better results. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. You can go back right here and you can say, I have that hope. And it is an anchor for my soul. And notice earlier how the author talked about drifting away. Right here, boom, go back and there it is. You anchor yourself in the promises of God.
what is the anchor? How many of you have ever been on a, a, a massive ship? Okay. Maybe like an aircraft carrier or a destroyer, or maybe a big cruise ship. How many of you have ever gone and looked at the anchor, right? Things are massive. This is what I want you to think about. When you're going through something hard and you're wondering if God is there and you're being pulled and tossed by the waves of the ocean of doubt, despair, and disbelief, I want you to go back. I want you to remember the promise that God gave to Abraham. I want you to remember the promise that you have as a child of God. And I want you to visually, rather than looking at what's going on around you, visualize the anchor of whatever ship that was going down into the ocean and plummeting and securing that ship of what you are on. And it will not move and it will not go. And then I want you to remember that that anchor is our Savior Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It. Jesus. Remember back in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies behind the great curtain and only the high priest could go in and offer the sacrifice. Others could be in the temple in certain areas, Individuals of the Levitical tribe, the priestly order could do so. If you were fortunate, you could enter some of the temple courts. But commoners like you and I, the Gentiles, to be honest with you, that temple was off in the distance. We didn't really know what went on there. We didn't know what happened. And what Jesus does is he says, look, I'm coming, I'm living, I'm dying for you. And I'm eradicating this system. I am forgiving you of your sins. I am giving you my life as a substitute. So that no more do you have to go through a priestly system to have your sins forgiven. They are forgiven. It is forgotten. You are free. But not only are you free, you are now mine. You are a child of the living king. If you look back and remember where it talks about that Jesus is no longer ashamed to call us brothers, and that's plural, it's brothers and sisters, it means that we're now part of the family of God. And if we're part of the family of God, what that means too is, is we are heirs to the king or heirs to the kingdom, which means we partake or participate in the kingdom that is granted. And that's what we have. And so Jesus dies on the cross and what we know when he dies and he gives up his, his, his life, he says it is finished. And what we remember in the scriptures is the veil is what? Torn in half from top to bottom. There is no longer a need. And what that means for us is that we can confidently go to God, not in and of ourselves, but through Jesus. And we don't have to worry about the veil anymore. And better yet... Not only did Jesus do that once, right? Don't miss this, okay? He entered, okay, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. I entered on your behalf. I went as the sacrifice for you. I offered myself for your sins. And by doing so, he became a high priest, okay? So don't miss this. If you have your Bibles, I would also circle this. Forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
Because one of the things you need to remember is, sure, there were, there were priests, and there was the, the, the high priest, the one person, once a year, who went and did the sacrifice. But they would roll over. There was transition. For the whole system, it wasn't the same priest. And so people might begin to trust in that individual, but they would recognize and say, you know, at some point, that person is either going to be surpassed, they're going to be replaced, they're going to die. So have I trusted in someone who it's good for now, right? I've got the best of the best for the next 10 years, but then Jesus is going to die or he's going to be replaced by something else. Because it's one thing to say, hey, you've got the best of the best, enjoy it, right? Hypothetically, for those of you that are soccer fans, right? Inner Miami has the best of the best. They got the goat, okay? For a while, Inner Miami is going to enjoy. Ticket prices have gone up from $29 a piece to $444 a piece. Inner Miami's games for the entire year, both home and away, are sold out, all because Messi has joined. You got the best of the best for a little bit. Not with Jesus. Don't miss this. He has become a high priest forever. He's not ending. In the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Interesting name. Next week, we're going to talk about Melchizedek, the high priest. We're going to look at why Jesus is better than Melchizedek, but the reason that Jesus is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek is because, unlike the other priests who were part of the sacrificial system, who were part of the Levitical tribe, who were part of the priestly order, Melchizedek was an odd foe. He was a king as well. And his kingly nature is why Jesus was in the line of Melchizedek. Because Jesus is establishing the kingdom that will last forever. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we can rejoice that this promise is sealed with an oath and it is an anchor for our soul. R.C. Sproul says this, Hope is called the anchor of the soul because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Have you latched on to the promises of the future that God has made? We walk by faith, not by sight. Are you standing on the promises of God? This morning we've looked and we've said, when we face challenging times, how might we be encouraged to persevere in our faith and our walk with Christ? And what we've discovered through these verses is first and foremost, as the author in Hebrews writes, we must remember and reflect upon the promise that God made to Abraham. Number two, we must remember that God does not go back on his promise and he seals it with an oath. And because of that, we can rejoice 
that this promise sealed with an oath is an anchor for our soul. And so the last thing that I'd like to do is this. When you are in a hard time and you are wondering where God is, I leave you with this take-home truth. May we rejoice as an anchor for your soul. Remember that our salvation and our endurance in the faith are rooted in God's changeless promises that are fulfilled by Jesus, who is our great high priest. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we just thank you for you. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. We thank you for the promises of God from which we can stand upon. And Father, in those moments of doubt, in those moments of wonder, in those moments of where God is, in those moments where we say, can we truly trust what's been given to us? Or is this just another false promise? That we can go back, we can look at the book of Hebrews, we can look particularly at this passage, or we can go back and we can look at all the promises that God has made. And Father, may we remember and recognize that it all culminates with our Savior Jesus Christ. He's the best of the best, or as we said before, he's the goat, the greatest of all times. We need no one else. So Father, because we need no one else, may we desire no one else. And Father, may we fall truly in love with you. And in those moments, Lord, whatever it may be, Father, in however way, whether it's reality or in an analogy, if you ask us to sacrifice our son, Father, may we trust that you indeed have a greater purpose. Father, may we be willing to walk with you despite what we might see, knowing indeed that your promises are true. Father, we have this hope and anchor for our soul. And because of the oath that you have made, that promise is signed, it is sealed, and it is delivered. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen.